When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at APFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Albert Falk about the new book, Hidden in Plain Sight, The History, Science, and Engineering of Microfluidic Technology. Stories behind essential microfluidic devices, from the inject printer to DNA sequencing chip. In this book, Albert Falk, a leading researcher in microfluidics, describes the development and use of key microfluidic devices. He explains not only the technology, but also the efforts, teams, places, and circumstances that enabled these inventions. Well, Albert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so can you tell us what do you do? I'm a professor in bioengineering, the Department of Bioengineering in, at the University of Washington. And I work in uh, microfluidics applied to cancer. So I've been doing that for the last uh, 20 years. And um, we, the, the applications in cancer are, are uh, due to the the fact that we are, what we do is we use, we, we put very small biopsies into microfluidic devices. Uh, the biopsies are, are very scarce and hence the use of, of microfluidics uh, because we want to apply uh, very large numbers of drugs to, uh, to, to a small, to a small, uh, to a small piece of tissue that uh, we get from patients. So that's in a nutshell what, what we do in, in my lab. Uh, we also apply uh, 3D printing techniques to develop novel novel devices. It's kind of a um, uh, you know a side uh, some side experimentation that we do in the lab, but um, it's mostly uh, cancer microfluidics that we do. And how did you get interested in uh, studying biotechnology and working in this field? Uh, well, this is a long story uh, when. When I moved, I, I started in in my in, in physics. I was I was born in Barcelona, and I studied physics. And I moved to uh, to Boston to, to MIT for a postdoc, and also following a woman I had met in Berkeley. And uh, all, all all this is explained in my in the introduction of my of my book. And uh, then she became my my wife, uh, Lisa. Then I did a second postdoc at Harvard. That's where I really started my microfluidics work <clears throat> in in 1997. 
uh, when I met my 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 mentor uh, Mehmet Toner, uh, who had a very inquisitive mind, and and that's where he always asked me to, to you know why do we do things and so on, and at the time we were starting to ask uh, you know uh, starting to apply microfluidic uh, microfabrication technology uh, to tissue engineering and biological problems. He was a pioneer in that. <clears throat> and and uh, then uh, microfluidics was the the right tool to uh, to follow up on that at the time uh, you know across across the <laughs> the the road uh, practically at Harvard um, George Whitesides was starting his his uh, uh, soft lithography techniques um, his first paper in soft lithography is for, dates from ninety three ninety four. And and then because because that meant bypassing uh, bypassing the clean room, that was a, a great opportunity. And so I started using those as well. Although I never went through Whiteside, but the Whiteside's group, uh, but it was very easy to to implement really in the in the lab. And and we started using PDMS as well. Uh, so so that's that's really how how it all started. Um, uh, the, the the fact that uh, we we kind of like we're looking at at, at white sites and, and implementing the, the PDMS techniques to to do tissue engineering and I, I spent three years with Mematoner at, at Harvard and that's when I got my job here that's from ninety seven to two thousand and two thousand I became a professor here at the University of Washington. So you said you were uh, moving for your position. So can I just tell us how easy or difficult was it uh, sort of, you know, approaching your life and then starting position like a postdoc in a different country? That's a very good question. Um, I, I think it's it, it can be difficult, like um, emotionally to, to leave your country and, and so on. But for me, I've always said that I, I would have never left uh, my my country. If it had not been for the fact that I was, I was, uh, I had two motivations because I I really had the motivations of uh, for me leaving. I was uh, you know leaving because of science, but also because of uh, because I had a love <laughs> uh, reason to leave. Uh, and I, I had a, a girlfriend, and I, I had I had met her in Berkeley before. And um, and then so I had a reason to go to Boston outside of science as well, and so I, I had really two powerful reasons, and and uh, we we had been having this long distance relationship. It was very clear that we loved each other very much, and and so so for me, but I I know it it, it can be very difficult, and I I um but but I it was also very clear for me that I did not want to do science in Spain um, because. Because it was very, uh, I, I, I the, the opportunities here were so much better, um, and so I, I had done, uh, you know, like a year in Berkeley, uh, more than a year, about a year and a half, and then I had been also a summer at MIT, and I had like uh, gotten a taste of this excellence uh, that that uh, people here work work very hard and. And I was, I thought, I thought that was uh, amazing, you know, that I had seen these these shiny labs, <laughs> and I really, I really wanted to do science here instead of uh, the the science that we that I had um, grown accustomed to in in Barcelona. 
So and, and now now it's it's got much better in in Barcelona, uh, with the investments in the in the last twenty years. But but back then it was very different. Um, but now I've established my life here with children and my wife, and so so things have changed for me as well on a personal level. And from your experience, what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? Uh, I, I would say always follow your heart. <laughs> but but no, no, I don't mean follow your heart in a in a way that like uh, love and follow. You know, just just do what what feels right. You know, just just try to uh, go go after. Uh, go go where your passion lies, uh, and and then it, it won't it won't feel wrong. Don't don't try to to try to uh, optimize the monetary gain or or things like that. Just just try to try to do what you think you, you're you're best at, and 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 then people will will pay you right after that. And and I I think that that's because uh, life is too short and and. And it's not it's not worth at least for me. I just I just don't don't I, I've never thought about money or anything like that. And I've been so happy professionally because I I was always thinking about enjoying uh, enjoying the learning experience. Yeah. So your latest book is Hidden in Plain Sight: The History, Science, and Engineering of Microfluidic Technology. So how did you come to writing it? Well. Uh, <laughs> It was really itching inside of me. I mean, there's so many beautiful stories, and 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 microfluidics is such a beautiful. Uh, it, it's so full of beautiful imagery, as as you can see from the in the book. It's full of beautiful images. I I, I convinced the editor, uh, the publisher, to to include to make it in in full color, so I could include a lot of images from 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 the people who attributed these. And and I've also met all the people that started <laughs> these microfluidic chips. Uh, almost all of them, you know, Andreas Mans, Whiteside, Mematoner, uh, Quake, and all their advisees. Uh, I mean, we just count uh, Whiteside, Hans Bivak, Chu Takayama, Noli John, <laughs> Abe Struve, Dan Chu, Rustemus Magilov, Samsia, John Rogers. Um, and so many that they did all the ones that come from white sites, and then they're all all the advisees from from them. Then they're all my my age, and and uh, and so and I've met the, the the senior people as well. So uh, so that that that's uh, I I I've met you know we we've shared a lot of things over the years, and so I also enjoy writing. Um, I, I grew up surrounded by books, uh, celebrating books. In in Barcelona, we we have a a book day in, in April twenty third. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know that, but I, well, my father was a publisher. Uh, my brother is a publisher as well, um, and so and, and my mother. My mother has also written several books. So th- this is my fifth book, by the way. But um, so so when COVID struck, for me, it was the logical thing to do with all that free time. Um, so so just to sit down and write. You know, <laughs> I, I love writing. That's what I do in my free time, uh, aside from playing soccer. And and so because because there were all all these people, um, everyone was at home. I decided to uh, start interviewing these people that I had easy access to, and and then collecting stories uh, from them. So I, I wanted to to kind of figure out putting together all the, like the history, but on a with a personal 
are full of personal accounts and and it's by no means like uh you know the whole history because this 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 uh, parts that I had to leave out otherwise it would have been uh, uh, you know monster book but but I had to pick a few examples uh those are the examples of the chapters essentially and and then and then I I made I made some like stories you know of the of those okay so let's dive into the stories and can we start with the very basics so we know that everybody's on the same level so what is microfluidic technology <laughs> um yeah it's essentially the the, the manipulation of small uh, like sub milliliter quantities of fluids in, in in very small channels and by small meaning uh meaning you know uh, uh, you, you know, smaller than you can fit in your in your thumb. Uh, you know, sometimes some, the the channels, the, the devices can be obviously larger. Uh, but the ba- basic premise of the book is that uh, most people are unaware of microfluidics and, and have been using microfluidic devices uh, all their lives uh, without knowing it. And so some are rudimentary, uh, like the ballpoint paint. It's based on a microfluidic principle. And some are are fabricated using miniaturization technology, um, uh, like the inkjet printer or like the, the glucometer uh, devices that people that diabetics use. Um, but what they all have in common is that the microfluidics are, are hidden from the user, <laughs> like the mechanics of a car are, are hidden uh, behind a console, uh, or or the electronic circuits are hidden under a touchscreen in your in your in your smartphone. And that's why the, the and, and hence the title, uh, the hidden in plain sight. Um, and um, yeah, and, and so the, the the goal was to approach the reader uh, to the to these inventors with this interviewing process that I did. So how did microfluidics start? Uh, I, I, I think I think it depends on how you ask this question because I mean, there's been microfluidics since the beginning of time, and and uh, this. This, uh, this two, there's two ways to ask this question. And, and when we talk about microfluidics, if you, if you mean microfluidic chips, um, uh, which is what this book is about, uh, it, it, they, they started, they started uh, in, uh, uh, with the analysis of, of chemicals uh, by, by, with the need of analyzing chemicals uh, essentially, chemists realized that they wanted to miniaturize their instrumentation uh, to make it more, make the analysis more efficient. And uh, so, so the the first one was a gas chromatograph. Uh, that was that was uh, this is what uh, chapter two is about. Chapter one is is just an introduction to the the, the techniques for to make these small devices. But chapter two. Uh, is is an interview. Uh, well, it's based on an interview to Steve Terry, who built the first chromatograph at Stanford, um, and it's the first microfluidic device in history. and And I interviewed him. is is an, a very charming old man now. It's a, he's seventies or eighties, and and uh, they they realized that they they could uh, increase the efficiency of uh, of separation of, of gases that's what a chromatograph does it separate separates the components of a gas um, by by miniaturizing it and it was a request by nasa actually because they wanted to 
make these separation more efficiency to put it to, to, the separations more efficient so that they, they so that they could put it on a on a on a shot uh, you know on the space um so from that design that was what's interesting what I connect this to to this that this the design that Steve Terry uh, put together was caught up by what uh, was noticed by by the people who who made the first um, uh, uh, inkjet nozzles and and they that they made the inkjet nozzles based on on those on those techniques and, and that's where I connected to I connect to the, to the droplet making uh, technology uh, that then became very important uh, and uh, and so so that, that's where kind of like the connection to the in, in the book I, I connect stories with each other that then I connect that to the to the emulsions um, because the droplets essentially are uh, only the, 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 the emulsions are, are droplets uh, are small drops in, in, in oil and and they're very important in our daily lives you know sauces the, that we eat to eat and, and, and drink every day are are, are, are emulsions or they're, they're very tiny droplets and and they is it and then I, I talked about a famous chef from from Barcelona, uh, where I'm from. He's it, it, really like the the Einstein of of chefs, and because I personally met him, and and also because he he was uh, invited to host a series of lectures at Harvard in the in a on on the science of cooking, which was then which were organized by Dave Wise, who who's a world expert on droplet microfluidics. And, and droplet microfluidics is a technique for the analysis of, of tiny chemical reactions at ultra high throughput. So this kind of like goes back to the beginning uh, in the in the story of the in the storytelling of the, of the book. So that's kind of like I like to um, make make these loops in the in the book of telling going back to the beginning. Um, so that's kind of like in in chapter two. Mm-hmm. So how do those droplets and those emulsions are being harvested to do some useful things? So what are some of the physical principles that underlie this technology? Well, they're being harvested uh, in different ways. They they are um, they're produced. uh, I explained that in the book, and uh, they. There's two there's two channels that meet uh, well three really that, that meet at a, at a one point and because the the channels uh, squeeze uh, uh, oil or uh, uh, two two channels of oil squeeze another channel of water there's a point where where the 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 uh, a water droplet gets created uh, from from continuous channels and. Um, Similar to what you would see in air when, when there's a drip of uh, a drip of, of of water in a in a faucet, but it happens between uh, between oil, um, and and so you you end up having lots of droplets being generated at a huge uh, at, a, at, at, at an unbelievable rate. We're talking about thousands of droplets generated every every second, and. And, uh, and and then they are they're put into a vial really and, and they, you, you 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 get them into a vial and you get you 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 can analyze them you can pass them through lasers you can pass them through uh, other microfluidic modules where they can be mixed or um, 
uh, merged and, and do all sorts of operations for, for analysis. So what were some of the very first and very important discoveries in this field? Well, in, in the... In, in the in the book, I go through. I, I give several examples of of uh, how how these uh, how how microfluidic devices were used. Um, uh, and one of them is, for example, the use of microfluidic devices for uh, for um, uh, decoding the human genome, and and because they. They, uh, they they can be used for uh, analyzing the uh, uh, nucleic acids, uh, so uh, DNA essentially. So the, the use of DNA, the, the use for, for DNA chips, and this was something that uh, was started by Andreas Mans and, and Richard Matthews at, uh, um, later at Berkeley, and they developed th these chips uh, for that were the basis of, of the human genome instrumentation, uh, and now uh, for the uh, next next generation sequencing that uh, the, the, Illumina, the Illumina chips that are also microfluidics. Uh, so all, essentially, uh, if you if you think about DNA chips or, or uh, you know the, the analysis of DNA, uh, it, it's it's it goes together with microfluidics. Although people are not aware of that, so that, that's one big uh, I think big contribution of. Of uh, microfluidics uh, that has gone in the background and people are not aware. Uh, another thing that I that I think it's, has been very 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 impactful has been the contribution to uh, um, blood analysis in general, I mean, miniaturized blood analysis in the in the form of uh, uh, glucometers. Uh, this, this, I go through this in, uh, in the, the history of this in in uh, chapter four and. And uh, the, the the history of this has been fascinating, fascinating as well. Uh, I interview a bunch of people, uh, but but uh, and, and by extension, other uh, point of care devices that that has been so the, the, all the miniature, miniaturization of analysis of, of bodily fluids has been a revolution. Uh, you, you know, using microfluidics, but but think about uh, uh, the diabetic people now. Now they can go and and buy. Uh, uh, a, a glucometer. I actually interviewed the uh, one of the the pioneers in this, uh, the the, free, the developer of freestyle, Adam Heller, who, who who when he was eleven years old, he had, he escaped from the Nazis, and uh, and so so the 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 these uh, uh, these are now available for ten dollars at the pharmacy, and and you can just you can just um, you know with a little bit of drop from from your finger. Or not even that. Wearing a patch on your side, uh, you can you can just monitor the levels of glucose in your body, and and uh, and 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 you don't die. People used to die from this, you know. And the other, um, another very important contribution is is the pregnancy test. Pregnancy test is a uh, is is a is a very is a marvelous microfluidic device based on a piece of paper that um, that contains. Uh, essentially, uh, either a paper strip that contains these stripes with antibodies and reagents that, that perform a, a very simple colorimetric reaction uh, with urine that can, that can detect if a woman is pregnant based on the levels of a protein that that is elevated in in in, in pregnant women, and so that has been a revolution in 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 in, in, 
for 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 you know women's uh, for women's health and and women's sexuality in uh, from since the sixties of course um, and I talk also about uh, uh, rare cells and uh, these are uh, revolution is still uh, being being um, you know in in the making but this was started in in my advisor's uh, mematoner's uh, uh lab. Uh, but he so so that 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 chapter is very rich with <clears throat> anecdotes, of course, because I had a lot of insider information, <clears throat> but also with, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's a it's a revolution because because they are able to create devices that have uh, that that harvest uh, very. Uh, rare cells in our blood. We're talking about one cell per billion cells in 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 our bloodstream that could that have can that that uh, signal the presence of cancer. And so they they the the, the idea is that we can detect uh, cancer before before it's it becomes uh, a problem for you know this is the first signs of metastasis. Uh, these are cells that are involved in the metastasis in, in our body, so so but they they are very in very small numbers, and uh, and so they are they essentially uh, just by filtering uh, your your blood um, at a, at a huge rates, uh, very very fast rates, they can detect them, and uh, with with a variety of designs. So I, I go through these in in that in that uh, that's the chapter eight. And um, and also, of course, you've you've heard of of uh, of three uh, D printers. Three uh, D printers are are microfluidic devices. They, not all of them, but but most of the designs of micro of three uh, D printers are 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 based on microfluidic principles, and and those have had, of course, a huge uh, impact. And um, I for, for this chapter this is the last chapter of the book. I I interviewed uh, Jennifer Lewis, who who was who, who one of the pioneers in this. She's at Harvard now, and uh, she she understood before anybody else the the rheology of the problem of, of how how uh, uh, how the, the 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 polymers are um, exuded extracted. From from the nozzle of a three D printer, it's a, it's a problem of understanding the viscosity of a polymer, um, and and so she she's based her career on 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 this, and she's built three D printers that do things that nobody could imagine they could do, and she has a very successful program uh, at Harvard and, and does amazing things. So, uh, but but I talk about a lot of things about about three D printers in general. We talk we show, show also how people can 3D print food now and um, and, and other things. I talk about the, the pioneers like uh, Greg Nordine, who also printed the first um, uh, microfluidic devices with 3D printers and, and so on. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a book filled with anecdotes and things that I have known most of these people. It's fascinating. Microfluidics are everywhere <laughs> without us yeah. even realizing. <laughs> yeah, they are. I, that's why. That's why. I mean, I actually, I, the, the the name of the book it was was uh, was my wife's idea when I had already written the book and 
and I, it had another I don't remember some other boring title and and she said when she was uh, going through the book and helping me with typos and things like that and she said Albert you, you should call this hidden in plain sight and I thought oh, I thought it was such a great idea I, I said oh, of course of course it's hidden in plain sight that's such a great uh, great name and and then uh, like about two like about a month ago I did a search on Amazon. It turns out there are several books called Hidden in Plain Sight, <laughs> which which I didn't I didn't realize. But uh, but they're 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 very uh, strange books. There's, there's, there, a couple of them are re- from uh, religious sects, and uh, <laughs> so the, yeah yeah it's they're very but they're like self published books. And well, there's one on some other some other strange some other strange thing. But uh, anyways, it's not a unique. Okay, uh, it's not a unique title, unfortunately, but but it is it is uh, that's what the subtitle is for, I guess. Exactly, subtitle makes it really unique. Yes. So um, I was wondering then, how are those small devices manufactured, and how easy or difficult is it to make them? Ah, so that, that that's a theme that uh, comes. It's a, a great question, and that's a theme that is uh, comes uh, recurrently during the um, uh, during the um, the book because uh, uh, at different stages in the book because it is part of the history of the field that that difficulty that uh, that we have had in in making these devices uh, we. People started making these devices from uh, silicon and from glass because people made them uh, uh, in in the same facilities as microelectronics. Uh, it's it, it essentially the people people that were that wanted to make the the, the first micro microfluidics engineers were people that had uh, that were very close to microelectronics engineers. They were you know, at IBM or or at uh, at uh, Bell Labs, and, and they they were <clears throat> they had no other tools, so they they had the same materials, glass and and silicon. But but very quickly, it became obvious that those materials were not ideal, and and uh, that's what I, I I wrote a whole chapter based on on this concept called the, the democratization of microfluidics, because because I, I I they they saw in in the in the nineties, early nineties. Uh, essentially, Whiteside saw uh, better than nobody else that that there was a huge problem with how devices were made at the time. It was just, they were made in 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 in, uh, in in glass and silicon. That that it was very difficult to make devices that way. And 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 he he came across with a new material. Uh, PDMS, polydimethyl siloxane, which is like a transparent rubber, and and uh, he and 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 I explained the, the how how they came across this because I, I I interviewed the people in in his that had been in his lab uh, in the very early stages of, of PDMS uh, handling, uh, which is uh, uh, Chad Huri and Amit Kumar, and and uh, it was wonderful that I could get a hold of them. Uh, to 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 figure out w- what was what was you know what was going on through their mind at that moment. So they uh, and 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 Amit Kumar in particular, he was the first the the person who published the first paper on 
on soft lithography, which was the, the technique that superseded essentially and that, that uh, allowed people to make microfluidic devices in this new material, uh, PDMS. And, and, and essentially still uh, about 90% of the, of the devices are still made in PDMS because it's so, it's so easy. Now, what I explain also in the book is that that material has several problems uh, in terms of manufacturing. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's very biocompatible. It's elastic. You can make microvalves. I also talk about microvalves. I even interviewed Mark Unger from uh, Steve Quakes, uh, who Steve Quakes invented the, the PDMS microvalve. And Mark Unger was the, the student who, who invented it. And it's a, so, it, it's a, but, but, uh, but it became, it became a problem uh, because in the in the 2000 2007 or so the 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 NIH and the other funding agencies started pushing for translation you know for the idea that <clears throat> that this, the scientists should also be involved in bringing the ideas to to society to to to, to market and <clears throat> which i think it's a it's a great idea but it has the, the problem that you know some some of these techniques are not Good for for mass manufacturing, and it became very quick. Very obvious, obvious. It became obvious very quickly that PDMS was not amenable uh, to mass manufacturing because it's very cumbersome to. It's very manual. It manual. The, te the, the technique is very manually involved. You, you you have to put. You have to do. This. It's 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 a molding technique. To 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 you you know, you, you mold the channels. Um, it's actually very easy to do, but it's also very hard to to make it in an automated in an automated way. And so I talk also about all the techniques that are now being implemented more and more uh, to to make it in plastic. So most of the most of the uh, objects that you you're probably holding in your hands right now are are made of plastic. You know, the, your pen, your your glasses, or, or or your phone, they have cases that that have uh, that have, that are made on plastic by by techniques such as the uh, molding techniques, like injection molding or hot embossing. And these techniques are much more amenable to uh, high speed and, and and high volume manufacturing. And so now the the uh, uh, the engineer micro, microfluidic engineers are turning towards those. Because those are also based on uh, these the thermoplastic polymers that are very biocompatible. Uh, they are a little bit more difficult to work with than PDMS, <clears throat> but instead they are very, very uh, uh, mass manufactured. So they're directly translatable to to, to uh, you know to, 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 to things that you can sell later. So, so that's that's essentially the, the short story <laughs> behind the, the problem. Or the, all the techniques that you that you see in the book. I also talk a little bit about uh, the, about the, there's also a chapter on on three D printing because three D printing has also uh, a lot of promise, although it has challenges in in, in biocompatibility, uh, but it has been very important in the in three D printing of of uh, uh, hydrogels uh, for for bioprinting and and because because of the of the compatibility. With, uh, with because hydrogels are materials that that you that you can directly uh, they're, they're very 
compatible with our physiological uh, insight, you know. So, so those are essentially all, all the you know, very short summary of, of of what we use in our in our in, in, in microfluids, the, the uh, glass and silicon, the old times PDMS. Uh, later on. Uh, inje- um, injection molding, injection molding, and hot embossing for thermo- thermoplastics, and, and also uh, uh, hydrogels. Mm. The biocompatible materials are so exciting, especially when we think about applications for the organ building, for example. Uh, y- yes, is that a question? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I was just to, yeah, I, I was wondering whether. You know, there are some of these applications are going even beyond sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> general, general uh, fantasies and uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was giving you a hard <laughs> I was giving you a hard time. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was uh, I, I think uh, the actually the 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 book ends ends in in this uh, ends with with a beautiful figure from uh, from uh from from uh, from a three D printed uh, from these three D printed uh, organs, uh, a set of figures from these three D printed organs. You know, one of which was a was a, a beautiful cover in science from from a, a, a collaborative effort between Jordan Miller and and um, and Kelly Stevens. Uh, Jordan Miller is at Rice University, uh, and uh, Kelly Stevens is is here at the University of Washington. And so they they um, and, and they use they use hydrogels and, and essentially I mean you, you can you can 3D print uh, a lot of very fancy microfluidic devices also in hydrogels um, and, and so that that's what it's covered in the in the last chapter in of the book in 3D printing uh, because I think it has a lot of applications in that in that organ organ printing uh, technique uh, yeah field. No, of course, organ printing is very specific and it's going to be, uh, you know, for, for one patient. But when we think about scalability, say 3D printed food, so how possible is it to scale up? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it will depend. Uh, well, one of the nice things about 3D printers is that you, you can always scale up by having more printers <laughs> and, and, by, and by having... Um, and by having a distributed, what's called distributed manufacturing, you you don't you don't need to manufacture everything at one place. Uh, you can send the design to many places, and you you have seen this during during the pandemic. During the pandemic, there was this uh, shortage of, of 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 these masks for hospitals. Right? Um, I'm not talking about the masks that we wear every day. I'm talking about the 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 these these masks that that, that uh, surgeons had to wear over over their over their faces you know the um the the the, the ones that were um you, you wear like a like a helmet and then and you you wear like a a, a shield a face shield that, that was that was what it was called and they, and they had to those were 3d printed um and it was very, it was a very simple thing that you put over it was a two piece thing and then you you put a the, the face shield was was, was just a uh, essentially, like a, a transparent, like a transparency. But you, it was a very simple thing, and, and people realized, oh, we don't. Uh, 
we don't, this doesn't need to be manufactured. This could be three printed. I'd like a, 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 you know a thousand different points across the country. We just distribute the design, and and people can say, and and this is what was done uh, during during the uh, during the pandemic um, because because it was so much more efficient, and that's called distributed manufacturing. So I think that that um, uh, that's a natural way of scaling it because these machines are not are not meant for high volume high volume manufacturing they're, they're, they're meant for distributed manufacturing so somebody can just upload their uh, a design to thingiverse or some other de depository exactly. mm. yes. yeah that's a very clever way mm -hmm. so what do you think is the potential of this technology for the future uh you mean microfluidics in general mm -hmm. <laughs> i <laughs> there are uh, well it, it, there's not a single potential. There's, there's, uh, I, I think, um, microfluidics has has, uh, it's like, <clears throat> it's 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 a it's a tool. Uh, it's a tool for to make uh, so many things. And and we're talking about, uh, you know, one thing is uh, organs on a chip, but but uh, another that uh, you know artificial organs. Uh, another another potential is for uh, for, for for better um, uh, point of care devices. It's, it's, a, it's very different. It's kind of like diverging. Well, one is for inside the body, the other one is for outside the body, uh, or for um, a genetic analysis and, and proteomic analysis and and, and even uh, secretome analysis. Uh, that would be even even more. Uh, more far-fetching, you know, kind of uh, trying to analyze uh, every uh, every possible um, substance that that uh, that cells and tissues are secreting, uh, so that we get a, a a better understanding of their uh, of their present state uh, at every single moment. Uh, not just a snapshot of their of their genetic uh, of, of their uh, you know genetic makeshift, um, and and so so these are these are you know things that people are are working on um, in uh, to, towards to, towards the future, and it will require a lot of engineering still. Um, automation is another area in which uh, it requires. A lot of uh, investigation uh, because we still don't have uh, the equivalent of uh, uh, an, a simple electrical valve. The best valves that we have right now in microfluidics are are simple, uh, very simple valves that uh, that, that are uh, elect uh, uh, pneumatically actuated. But that requires that the device be tethered to to uh, to, to to a you know. So, but there's no such thing as, as like a we don't have a device like a smartphone that operates operates without being uh, being tethered. There's some now that are, operate uh, very cleverly with um, uh, with with capillarity principles where where there's a lot of built-in automation uh, with sequences uh, that are built-in uh, that have been that have been uh, lately have been 
demonstrated uh, by David Juncker and others. Um, and and so yeah, those are I think I think the other area in which this the need for innovation is also in the materials uh, for 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 three D printing. Uh, right now, although there's a lot of enthusiasm for three D printed microfluidic, we actually have a very limited set of very limited set of tools uh, there. We have very limited set of choices because we we don't we cannot three D print uh, anything we want. We we most of the materials out there are not very biocompatible. So if you, you ask me, what is that we can three D print in 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 uh, in microfluidics, well, it's it's limited still, and so it would be nice to to have a broader set of tools uh, where we could have maybe like you know a dozen or or twenty different materials of all types of properties, so that we could build you know all 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 types of of uh, uh, of of, uh, of, of Functionalities inside inside the inside device, um, but it, it will come. It will come. Do you feel that microfluidics eventually going to be um, another sort of point of focus for biohackers like CRISPR has become? Um, no, I don't. I don't imagine how. <laughs> no, I don't see that being, that being a problem. How would they hack it? I I I'm not even aware of uh, that problem. Sorry. It's not a easily accessible technology to make microfluidic devices, is it? Uh, I, I think it's, it's easily accessible. I just not not see it um, easily hacked. I, I don't know how to. I, I wouldn't know how to. I, yeah, it will be. It will be very obvious uh, if, it, if it were uh, someone. You know, one thing is the stealing the the. the Intellectual property or things like that, but but uh, hacking, uh, as in uh, introducing a malicious uh, bug or things like that, that's a very that's very different. Oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> so, just reflecting a little bit on a wider picture. So, sometimes uh, these technologies that we develop, we don't really see the immediate applications, for example, but, you know, they, they will come in the future. So why is it important for us to be researching and investing in the development of these technologies, even if they don't have the apparent application at the time? <clears throat> well, for, <laughs> for me, it's, uh, that's a difficult question to, to answer, because for me, it's uh, the, the applications are very are very obvious. I guess you're asking me to put myself into the mind of someone who, who for whom the applications are not obvious. Um, uh, I would, I would have to. Maybe I would tell them to read my book <laughs> and, and and tell them that that the there are there are a lot of and, and get them familiarized with the uh, with the field of microfluidics because because microfluidics. Uh, uh, you know, if you if you if you walk into a, a a biology lab, okay, or into a chemistry lab, this is this is a, a very obvious at that point. Um, the manipulation of fluids uh, is everywhere, right? So you the biologists have to pipette, and um, chemists have to 
do chemical reactions in in their <clears throat> in their vessels, right? In their um, in, in, in their little tubes. So the, there's always a benefit to miniaturizing those <clears throat> and and making <clears throat> excuse me and and making uh and, and, and making these reactions in a in a smaller in, in a smaller um at a smaller scale and there's a point where that scale becomes microfluidic and it requires microfluidic techniques there's always a benefit so when you when you realize this that's when you want to read my book and and see what has been done which uh, people realized this uh, in the 1970s 1980s and that's where uh, Andreas Manns formulated uh, their uh, his first, he was a chemist. He is a chemist, and he formulated his his uh, first, you know, the, the principle of scalability and all that stuff. So all this has been has been done, and and I think that 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 it, when you realize that uh, that there's a uh, there's a, a tyranny of pipetting uh, in in and I'm not the first one to say this. It's a, it's a saying by by uh, by uh, Steve Quake, and and you know that 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 uh, biologists are are submitted to this to this uh, subjected to this tyranny of pipetting. Then you realize that it's extremely important that microfluidics is, is a is that's why it's a tool that's now being adopted uh, that has been already adopted by uh, by biotechnology companies, um, chemistry companies, et cetera, to upscale their products uh, because, because it's, uh, it's, it's, there's always a financial gain, uh, an efficiency gain in, in doing these processes at a, at a smaller scale. Excellent answer. My pipetting uh, thumb agrees with you. <laughs> yeah. So what discoveries in your research for your book Hidden in plain sight surprised you the most. What? Uh, sorry, what discoveries? Yes, maybe you came across some interesting topics, or maybe you discovered that you, for example, as you say, really love writing. Yeah, well, no, I already knew that I love writing, but I, I think that in general, my, my the, the the biggest pleasure that I derived the, the discoveries were the stories. Of uh, the personal stories uh, during the interview process, that that was uh, a, a, a great, um, I guess, idea that I had for this was was that um, well, having the ability to to um, access all these researchers who, who were at home, I, I realized because it was COVID that they were uh, they were at home, and and then. Uh, I uh, one by one, I think they were all in their own unique. Uh, uh, you know, when I and they, they were all available. <laughs> it was it was amazing that they all answered yes to, uh, to almost all answered yes to my request, and 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 they were so enthusiastic about sharing their their life experiences. Uh, so they they were telling me about their, uh, you know, their when they were uh, little, what they were, and they, <laughs> and it was it was nice to. Uh, here, the, the 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 other side of uh, kind of like the, the personal side of their of their discoveries. Um, uh, so some stories were were more 
more interesting than others, um, just because some people are better storytellers than others. And and uh, but but this I think that it's reflected in the book. But I I, I learned a lot. I, I learned. I learned a lot about the history of the field by by writing the book. Uh, so that that was what I I'm, I'm very happy I wrote it <clears throat> because in, at the beginning uh, when I started writing it was more dry. Uh, but when uh, because because COVID struck, I I was able to do it in a more to have this this more personal uh, approach uh, that that allowed me to uh, uh, approach the 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 inventors to the readers this way does that make sense yeah for sure love it so uh, are you a fan of molecular gastronomy in this case so uh, you you tried some for of Ferran Adria's uh, dishes do you have any favorites <laughs> I'm actually a very picky eater I have to say um, I was uh, I, I went to this restaurant because um, my wife begged me to and uh, I, I, I had to uh, I had to ask Farhan Adria to to make make a lot of extra uh, you know special dishes for me. But but, but I didn't I didn't enjoy the experience a lot. And and uh, it was amazing. It was it was uh, uh, you, you know you you go to that uh, restaurant uh, El Bulli, which was closed for a long time. Now I think it's it's reopening. And and uh, you you got there at eight uh, eight p.m. It was a single seating. And you stayed there for five hours. We, we, we you, you, you leave at, at one a.m. And uh, by the end, by the end of the, uh, he, he, he always comes to greet the, 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 the people that go to the restaurant. Um, so, so that's where the, the picture that you see in the, in the, in the book is, is with him there. Um, but, but I, I, I had actually, uh, um, my, my, my dad. Uh, uh, and, and my brother personally knew him already, so we had a, a lot to talk about. Actually, uh, uh, when we when we got there, um, we were the only ones who, in my family who had not met him, and and so so we we had to talk a, a lot of we had a lot to talk about when when we met him, and and it, it was um, uh, yeah, it was nice when when he he was telling us about uh, why he did things and, and why he loved so much, uh, why he loved cooking so much. And uh, he, he's kind of, he's an amazing character. He's, he, you have to realize he, he didn't even finish, uh, his studies. He didn't even finish high school. And, uh, and yet he's, he has such an, uh, an amazing scientific approach to cooking. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, the, the the term molecular gastronomy is actually, if you look in Wikipedia, is, is attributed to somebody else. But he is really the person who who put together all all the practical uh, approach to to molecular gastronomy. He, he's he's a really the, the the person who 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 did all the uh, all the dishes of molecular gastronomy uh, twenty years before anybody else. And uh, he's he's a, he's a remarkable individual, very very remarkable. The the way he's the passion with which he speaks about uh, how he makes his, his he puts so much thought into it. You know, it's it's just amazing. And, and that's the reason why David Weiss invited him to to his to his um, uh, science of cooking course because uh, he can he can engage he can engage. Uh, these these audiences by by his by his talking he 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 
he barely speaks English, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> he, he's, he's amazing. He, he just, uh, he, he's just, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a unique individual. I, I, I find him like a, like a, yeah, a genius. He's, he's just a genius. You, you would see immediately when just talking to him. Uh, he's a celebrity in Barcelona, by the way. He's, he could he does he cannot be on the streets because he would be followed by immediately just surrounded by a mob, you know. <clears throat> but so it, it, that's funny. It's funny that I explain that I, I ran into him on the street in in Cambridge just by chance, and uh, and he recognized me, and I, of course I saw I recognized him because he because he had been to the rest. We had been to the restaurant, and. <laughs> And I, it was funny that he was just alone on the on the streets of of, uh, of Cambridge. Um, he, just, he, he would have been surrounded by a mob in Barcelona. Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So, could you tell us then what are you working on now, and what will be your next project? Guess what? I'm working on a new book on microfluidics. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but this one is is for uh, is for is for um, like popular audiences uh, for the for broad audiences that's like a like a trade book um and the idea is similar but uh, but not uh, no there's no focus on history I, I cover not just microfluidic chips but also uh, i want to cover uh, all the natural microfluidic phenomena like uh, capillarity in plants uh, like raindrop formation um uh, you know things like the the rainbow. The rainbow is a beautiful microfluidic phenomenon, right? Um, blood flow in capillaries, uh, our sweat, uh, but but also the the impact. Uh, uh, you know, starting with a with a human story behind this, and and also um, and also, but also covering many rudimentary devices based on these principles. For example, the the candle wick. The candle wick is is a is a is a microfluidic device because it, it's based on capillarity or the paintbrush uh, or the the carburetor or the, or the fuel injector. These, these are based on 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 capillarity principles or the kidney dialysis or the spray bottle, uh, the asthma inhalers. Um, these are these are all these are all devices that predate uh, microfluidic chips. And I of course I also want to talk about microfluidic chips. This is going to be a, a larger book. But again, not the focus will not be on the history, but on illuminating microfluidic mechanisms for the non-expert reader. So that, that's that's the that's my <clears throat> that's what I'm working on now. It's kind of like halfway already. Yeah. That sounds super exciting. I hope you come and talk to us about it. Mm, sure, that'll be my pleasure. So, what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your books? Uh, oh, just Google. Albert Falk and uh, uh, the University of Washington. <laughs> and yeah, Google Albert Falk books, uh, I think, uh, in, or Albert Falk, uh, MIT Press, for example, uh, they, they'll, they'll get to the book. Uh, that's, that's the best place. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.